Our Old Testament reading for this morning is a portion of the 27th Psalm. Listen for God's holy word. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Here ends the reading. We continue our reading through the Gospel of Mark as we've been traveling together with Jesus and his disciples. If you care to read along, you may do so on page 43 in the back half, the New Testament portion of your pew Bible. I'll begin reading at the 27th verse of chapter 8. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, uh, others Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And then he went, began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, If anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of then the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. 
and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. This is the end of our reading from Holy Scripture for this day of transfiguration. May we allow our lives a measure of awe in the presence of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, have I told you that I'm a grandfather? Have I told you this? Yeah? Well, uh, we're rather excited in our family uh, because we've had the arrival of our second grandchild. And uh, that means that this week I was able to spend a little bit more time with that family than I often have the chance to do. And our oldest grandson thought this was a good deal. In fact, he was saying to his parents, shouldn't Gampa Bayan come every, uh, every day and bring us special lunch, Mom and Dad, you know? He thought this was a good deal, and so did I. I watched him play around the house. He, he fell over once, and I said, ooh, wipe out. And I realized he didn't know what that meant. You know, I'm from Southern California, and so I put on the safaris. We can say, Alexa, play Wipeout. Wipeout! We had great fun jumping up and down. It was a great grandpa time. Of course, you know, we were jumping up and down so much that the little brother then started crying out. He wanted to play as well, right? Maybe he was just a little hungry. I don't know, something like that. But uh, have I told you my new grandson's name? His name is Henry Robb. You may not know, but my wife's name is Jill Robb. She's named after her grandfather, Gil Robb. So he's got part of our family name, this little wonderful little boy I got to hold. Our scripture today takes place in a place of naming. It is a place called Banyas today, if you travel there. It's at the base of Mount Hermon. It's in a location, if you go there now, where there's a big granite wall, and out of the middle of this granite wall, there is a flood of a fountain, just a gusher of water that comes out from the snows that are high up on Mount Hermon above and melt and find their way down into a pool before it runs out into the plain to irrigate, the, irrigate all of the farmland and be gathered in the watershed of the River Jordan. In Jesus' day, that place had a different name. Uh, in those days, Herod's son Philip, you may remember earlier in the Gospel of Mark hearing about Herodias. Philip was her first husband for she married Philip's brother, right? The son of Herod the Great. Philip he used this place and named it as an emblem of his authority. 
he aligned himself with Caesar, so he called it Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you go there today and you see this mighty rock and the fountain spilling out of it, you're able to pick up a stone and imagine Matthew's telling of this story where Jesus says to Simon, you are Petros, you are rock, you are Peter, the one on whom I will build my church. But in Mark's gospel, there is only one name of significance, and it is not the emperor Caesar, and it is not the pretender king Philip, it is not even Peter or James or John. The name that matters in this place is the name that Peter exclaims about Jesus, Christos. This was really cool, Anna, this morning where you pointed out the Christos, the Cairo that's here on Amy's stole. Uh, frankly, this is a bad translation here. It's not Messiah. Uh, Mark could have used the Hebrew word if he wanted to, Christos. The Greek word refers to an anointing. And if you think about an anointing, it is a sign or a symbol of a special purpose that God is giving. A divine purpose. You anoint kings, you anoint prophets, you anoint priests, and Jesus is all three of these, prophet, priest, king. Mark wants us to see and understand this all in a name. But I want to allow us to hear the challenge that Jesus offers his disciples. It is the same challenge that he offers to each one of us today. Because sometimes, especially we Presbyterian Christians, we get all wrapped up in our head. We do our research. What exactly was this transfiguration? How did it happen? We want to research and understand. But we miss the heart of the matter. Jesus hears the way people are talking about him, and that's all fine and good. But he wants to know what the disciples believe. They had been with him. They had seen his work of healing and compassion. They had listened to the way his teaching was able to cut through the fog, get to deep meaning. Jesus wanted to know who they believed he was. And Jesus wants to know who you believe he is. Because faith is more than just an intellectual exercise. Now, I was working on my sermon this week, and, uh, you know, I'm fa I can face out. There are windows on the, on the door there. And all of a sudden, this, this little piece of paper started floating in front of my window without anyone, without anyone near it. You know, if this goes, then let's just switch to this, okay? Uh, so this says faith on it. It has the New Orleans Saints on it. Guess my buddy Connie Colwall up there, he put this in front of me, right? He said, I'm listening to these stories. Now, if you come into my study, you'll be able to find something important that was offered to me a long time ago. 
at the end of my work as a youth ministry leader in Detroit. It's, uh, it's this little statement. It's by a man named C.S. Lewis. And it's a reminder to me, who sometimes thinks a little too much about what goes on in the heart. In the last analysis, Christianity is not a philosophy which we accept. It's not a theory to which we give allegiance. It's not something which is thought out. It's not something which is intellectually arrived at. It is a personal response to Jesus Christ. It is the answer of the heart to the magnet of Christ. It is an allegiance and a love which a person gives because their heart will not allow them to do anything else. Who do you say Jesus is? What is the answer of your heart? As soon as Peter calls Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the prophet, priest, king, then Jesus tells him that he will suffer, die, and rise again. Now, just pay attention to the sudden shift that happens in Peter's heart. This very man who just called him the anointed one, the Christ, this man Peter suddenly rebukes, and this is a harsh word, rebuke. It's the same word Jesus used when speaking to a man filled with demons. He rebuked him. Does Peter suddenly now think that Jesus is cursed with demons? No wonder Jesus responds in kind, saying, Get behind me, Satan. Satan meaning the tester. Not only does Jesus teach that he will suffer, die, and rise, but he now turns the screw further for his listeners. You must take up your cross and follow me. If you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me. Now, I have a few qualms about this little part of the Bible. Because, you know, there are some days when I, well, I leave the dishes out in the kitchen and my wife tells me that I am her cross to bear, okay? But in a more serious way, I know that there are some people for example, living in abusive relationships who somehow think in some twisted sadomasochistic spiritual way that they are being forced to endure that kind of pain? I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind. No. Long ago, one of the greatest thinkers of the Christian faith, St. Augustine, wrote that the suffering of Jesus that he describes is not this sort of twisted sense. Rather, it is like love. The way you suffer for someone you love, you labor for them, because you are working for a better day that you can see you suffer for what you love, for the future that you see in front of you. For example, you know, I told you I'm a grandpa, right? Well, my wife is a grandma. 
And she went down to the apartment of my daughter's family in Chicago when Annie was enduring some constant hard labor pains and she was there ready to manage her oldest grandson when Annie and her husband were going to rush to the hospital. So around 4.30 in the morning, my wife found herself missing quiet Libertyville, nice suburban Lake County. She was missing this area because she was awakened by some drunk singing on the Chicago streets below. And as she listened, she thought, but this is, this is kind of a happy drunk. And then as she listened, she realized the singing was by my grandson, you know? <laughs> Down by the bay where the watermelons grow. Down by the bay where the watermelons grow. Oh. Look, she was willing to suffer some insomnia because she loved my daughter and her family. And more than that, it was not just suffering for the sake of suffering alone, it was in pursuit of a hope for which love endures. And that is what makes people serve others on the late night shift here in PADS, work in soup kitchens, work on youth retreats and food pantries, hospital visits, we do work, and sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's heartbreaking work, and we do it out of love. That is the cross we bear. Will you take up that cross? Now, all of these verses were just prologue to the day of transfiguration. Jesus takes these key disciples to the top of the mountain. And they see Moses, and they see Elijah, who had their own mountaintop moments. And now Jesus' face is blazing bright. At the baptism of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, we hear a voice say, This is my Son, the Beloved. And here God's voice is more directive. This is my Son, listen to Him. Why this transfiguration what is it friends it is the mystery of the love of God made tangible among us when Paul tries to describe this in one of his letters he encourages us to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. The Christ the Anointed One. That's transformation. God amongst us transfigured by love. In this passage, in Caesarea Philippi, you first see the word, the way, the name for early Christians who were on the way because they are turning towards Jerusalem on the way. 
These disciples captured a mountaintop vision, but poet John Muir wonders some of their questions after it took place, wondering, was it a vision, or did we see that day the unseeable? Was it a change in us alone, and the enormous earth still left forlorn? This is the gift of discipleship. To love as Christ loves. To take up your cross, my cross. To resist all in this world that will hate or hurt. To change our lives so that the world will not be left forlorn. So I leave you with three questions today. Who do you say Jesus is? Will you take up your cross? And will we follow love until this forlorn world is changed? I deliver this to you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.